welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. If you have a Bible, take it this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 to 7 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Last week we saw as we entered here now into the third chapter of this letter that Paul turns his attention now to the topic of church leadership. Where in verses 1 to 7, he addresses the qualifications for elders, the men who are to lead the church. And then in verses 8 to 13, he will turn and address the qualifications for deacons, those who lead in serving the church. And we said, if you remember, that these are the only two biblical offices of the church. It isn't pastor and then elders and then deacons. It isn't pastor, singular, and deacons in this eternal power struggle, and also all these committees. No, there are only two biblical offices of the church. Elders, plural, and deacons. And we see that here in chapter 3. And so last week we began to look, if you remember, at the office of the elder. And I told you that I wanted to look at what the Scripture has to say about this office by asking three questions. Three questions. Question number one, what are elders? We looked at the various titles and terms the Bible uses to describe this office. And we said, if you remember, that the New Testament uses three terms to refer to one in the same office. Overseer or bishop, elder, and pastor. All synonymous terms used interchangeably to describe the one office. Overseer, elder, pastor, each term highlighting various aspects of the one office. That was the first question. What are elders? Second question we looked at last week. What do elders do? What are the roles? What are the responsibilities? What's the job description of an elder? And I gave you four biblical responsibilities of the elder. Elders are called to lead. Elders are called to care, elders are called to teach, elders are called to model. Lead, care, teach, model. That's what they do. That's the main task of the elder. And we spent our time last week answering those two questions, what they are, what they do. And so this week, in in the second look here at the office of elder, I want to ask and answer a third question. What must they be? In other words, what are the qualifications? What are the characteristics? What are the traits of the elder? What are they to be? And we see those listed here in verses 1 to 7. Allow me to read them. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. It was D.A. Carson who rightly observed about this list here in verses 1 to 7 that the most remarkable thing about this list is how unremarkable this list actually is. He writes, this list is remarkable for being unremarkable. He goes on to say, in other words, there's nothing here about his superior IQ, nothing here about his charisma, nothing here about his powerful personality or the like. Indeed, he says, with only a couple of exceptions, all of the qualifications listed here are elsewhere in the New Testament demanded of all Christians. There are only a couple of entries here that cannot be demanded of all Christians. Everything else, he says, however, is the responsibility of all believers, not just the pastors of believers. So, beloved, this list is surprisingly unsurprising. It is remarkably unremarkable. And yet, this list is extremely important. Because... Rightly qualified church leaders are essential to the health and the order and the protection of God's church. Chapter 3, verse 15, remember, it is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This, this is what the church is, and therefore, church leadership matters if we want to guard the church and if we want to guard the truth of the gospel. And here in verses 1 to 7, we see what these leaders are supposed to be. And notice, Paul doesn't just give the job description of a pastor. In fact, notice he focuses on here the character of the one who serves in that office. But before we dive into this list here of qualifications, I want to make absolutely clear first who, who this sermon is for. Who's my target audience this morning? I have three. Three target audiences who this sermon is for this morning. Number one, first, I'm preaching to the current elders of this church. I'm preaching to us, brothers. I'm preaching to Brian. I'm preaching to Scott. I'm preaching to myself, as I have been all week, because this is who we must be. Which means that even though this List. There isn't much here that isn't required of all Christians. However, the chief characteristic of the pastor, of the elder, is that his life consistently reflects this list in its entirety. We are to be leading in all of these areas, which means we must lead by example. So I'm preaching to us. I'm preaching to the, the elders of Second Baptist Church. Here's the second audience, though. 
I am preaching this morning to every man in this church. Every man of Second Baptist Church. Paul has much to say, as we've seen in this letter, to women. We've seen that. But here, he's addressing the men. And specifically, even more so, addressing the men who would aspire to this office. So he isn't just addressing elders here. Well, now how do we know that? Well, because, as I said, apart from just a few things in this list, this is the picture of a godly man. And so, brothers, this list must inform your character. It must inform your home life. It must inform your marriage. It must inform your parenting. You, you may never be an elder. You may never lead a church. You may never preach a sermon in your life. But this is who you must be. This is what it looks like to strive for godliness, to be called as a godly man with honor and integrity and Christ-likeness. So I'm preaching to every man in this church. So no naps today, brothers. This isn't for me. No. This is for you. But I have a third audience. I am preaching to this whole church. Everybody. Does that cover pretty much everybody? Men and women. Every member of Second Baptist Church. Why? Because this list of qualifications implies that this is the standard to which you are to hold your leaders accountable. In other words, it is your responsibility, church, to see that your leaders, the leaders of this church, meet this standard laid out here by Paul. And remember, as goes the leadership, so goes the church. And the church will only rise to the level of its leadership. So no one can say this morning, well... This passage isn't for me. No, this passage is for all of us. If you care about the church, if you care about the church's reputation, if you care about guarding the gospel, if you care about the believability of the gospel, you'll care about this. It's for you. So I want to look at this text under three headings. Three headings this morning. What, as we answer the question, what must an elder be? Number one, I want to look at the desire of the elder. Verse one, what... What does it mean to aspire to this office? Is, is eldership a calling? The desire of the elder. Second, the character of the elder. Verses 2 to 5, where he lists these character traits, and we're going to walk through them all together. And then third, finally, the testing ground of the elder. Verses 4 to 7, and there's three of those, if you notice, each of them followed by a purpose clause or a reason so the training ground that proves his qualifications to serve in this office. Those are the three points. So first, I want you to see the desire of the elder. The desire of the elder in verse 1. Notice Paul begins here with the second trustworthy saying of this letter. The first was back, if you remember, in chapter 1 in verse 15. You'll say it again later in chapter 4 in verse 9. Which shows us now that Paul is transitioning here from what he's just been saying as it relates to corporate worship and it relates to the roles of women. So he begins a new topic here, but notice also it underscores here the reliability and the seriousness of what he's about to say. Verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. In other words, he's saying faithful is the saying. 
reliable is this statement? It's, it's similar to what Jesus says, if you remember when he says, truly, truly, I say to you. The saying is trustworthy. Perhaps it was a popular saying at the time, what he's about to say here, but Paul, notice he's giving it here, divine approval. And he wants us to see the the weightiness. He wants us to see the truthfulness. He wants us to see the seriousness of what he's about to say. And he wants us to see how we should approach the office of the elder. This is no small thing. Truly I say to you, saying is trustworthy. Listen carefully. And then in verse 1, notice he turns to address the desire of the elder. Or you could say the calling of the elder. In other words, is the office of elder a calling? How would we know if a man is called to this task? Look at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So is the office of elder then a calling? And the answer is, maybe. Maybe. Two important things to remember here. Notice first, an internal desire. There must be an internal desire. Verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So notice there, those two words there, aspires and desires. Aspires and desires. So this is, this is a man's desire. This is his aspiration to be an elder. And in verse 1, this desire, Paul says, notice, it is, a, it is a noble desire. In other words, he desires a good thing. He desires a, a good work. It's a noble task. It is a right thing, he says, for a man to desire to be an elder in the church. But only if that man understands biblically what it means to be an elder. And if he is motivated by the right things. It is a noble thing to want to be an elder. However, the desire itself may not necessarily be a noble desire. You see what I'm saying? You, you can easily desire a right thing for the wrong reasons. In other words, he can be motivated by wrong things. So what might be a wrong desire... For someone aspiring to be an elder. Well, I, I would say to any man who aspires to this office, if, if that motivation, if that desire is so that you have some say in how the church is run, you, you want to be the one to help shape the vision of the church? You, you want to bring a certain perspective to the table? You want to gather a following? You want to be recognized in the eyes of others, seat at the table, it's a wrong desire. That isn't why you seek to be an elder. No. Because at the heart of pastoral ministry is a desire to serve rather than to be served. Not lording it over others, but serving Christ and his bride. It is selflessness rather than control. It is loving rather than domineering. It is giving rather than glory. 
It's always for the benefit of those whom you serve and the glory of Christ. And in verse 1, Paul says, if you are aspiring to the office of elder and all that entails with pure motives, it's a good desire. It's a noble desire. So there must be an internal desire. However, while it's a noble thing to aspire to the office of elder, that aspiration alone isn't sufficient for appointment to the office. What I mean is, just because you have the internal desire doesn't mean it's a calling. Which leads to the second thing about this desire. Not only an internal desire, but an external affirmation. An external affirmation. There must be an external affirmation. It isn't simply enough to have an internal desire. I mean, I I remember being in seminary with a lot of guys who said they were called And I'm here to tell you they had absolutely no business being in ministry. Desire isn't enough. So what's required? Well, there must be, as well, an external affirmation by the church. In other words, the man, he must have the the internal desire here, and perhaps he comes to that desire Reluctantly, in fact, I think that's wise. It's a reluctant desire because he recognizes the seriousness and the the burden of the office. But the church must also affirm the calling on their life. The church has to see it too. In fact, we see this external affirmation even here in this letter. Look over in chapter 4 for a moment. Chapter 4, verse 14, Paul is reminding Timothy here of his own calling. And in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. We often refer to this as ordination. That's what it means. Meaning, this is the church's public affirmation of a person's calling to minister. So, it, it isn't just an individual subjective feeling. It is also a corporate objective affirmation of the church. They recognize the calling. Or look over in chapter 5 and verse 22 as well. After outlining how the church is to rebuke and discipline an elder who falls into sin, he says in chapter 5 verse 22, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. So in other words, again, he's describing here the ordination of those to the office of elder. And he's warning the church, he's warning the council of elders about being too quick, being too hasty to make anyone an elder who isn't qualified. So notice, there must also be an external affirmation of the elders and of the church who recognize this calling. And they they must be vigilant, they must be careful about who they ordain to this office. So, there must also be an external recognition by the elders, by the church, that he's called. And if both of those are present, the internal desire and the external affirmation, then, brothers and sisters, it's a noble calling of God. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, if you remember when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders there, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is a divine calling. And so I would say to anyone who aspires to this office, first, 
Aspire humbly. Second, seek wisdom and counsel. And third, what follows here in verses 2 to 7, make it the pursuit and goal of your life. Because that's where Paul now turns. So how can we recognize whether or not a man may be called? Second, point number two, the character of the elder. This is what an elder must be. In fact, notice in verse 2 the word therefore. Therefore, an overseer must be. So, in other words, because this is noble, because this is so serious, because this is such an important task, therefore, here's what he must be. Here is the character he must have. These are the qualifications he has to meet. Meaning his life is to be watched. It's to be studied carefully. And we see here this list of qualifications, notice. Although, I'm going to break it into two parts here. So in verses 2 and 3, notice Paul gives here 11 characteristics or qualifications of an elder. But I'm, I'm going to give you eight helpful categories. So there's 11 qualifications, but eight helpful categories. First, let me just say a few things about this list more broadly. Number one, notice... More generally speaking, this list, it shouldn't be viewed as exhaustive. This isn't a comprehensive list, like this is the only thing he has to be, because you see it, this list in other places, although it's ordered and arranged, and even there's other things given in some of the other lists, Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5. So these aren't the only qualifications, the only characteristics, but these are the main ones. These are the high points, we might say. Second, I think it's important to note this list here, it speaks to the specific historical context Paul's writing in. In other words, he's comparing here the godly elder, the qualified elder, with the false teachers of his day for plaguing the church. If you remember, Paul, he's writing to Timothy in order to direct them how to deal with false teachers. In Ephesus, according to chapter 1 and verse 3, and one of the main ways you do that is you make sure your teachers are godly teachers. And so this list then would be in direct contrast to the, the, the characteristics of the false teachers. For example, just notice that in chapter 1, their teaching, the false teachers, it resulted in speculations and vain discussions. Remember that? Chapter 1, verses 4. Chapter 1, verse 6. And so the, the godly elder is to be able to teach the Word of God, chapter 3, verse 2. Or in chapter 4, verse 3, the false teachers were requiring abstinence from marriage. And so what does Paul do? Well, he looks at the marriage and the home life of the elder. Or look over in chapter 6, in verse 4 and 5. Look there, verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4. These false teachers were puffed up with conceit had an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels, imagining that godliness was a means of gain. And so to counter that, chapter 3, verse 3, the elder can't be quarrelsome. Can't be a lover of money. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, so he's not puffed up with conceit. So you, you see, it's, it's countering the very specific issues Paul's dealing with in this church. Here's the final thing, more generally, I just want to say about this list. I said it last week, but I'll say it again because it bears repeating. 
This list isn't primarily about a man's gifting. In fact, you could say that really apart from one thing on this list, everything else is about his character. So Paul's overall concern here is a man's character. It is his godliness, it's his reputation, it's his integrity that sets him apart. So let's look at these eight categories, verses 2 and 3. And I want to spend some time walking through each of them. Why? Because each one matters. And church, you need to know what you're looking for in an elder and, and how to identify them. First, characteristic number one, he must be above reproach. He must be above reproach. Verse 2, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. This seems to be the overarching characteristic here. Acts is sort of the title, I think, of this entire list, really. In other words, it's, it's the one that governs all the others that are about to follow. John Chrysostom, the early church father, he said this. He says, every virtue is implied in this word. He must be above reproach. The, maybe a very less fancy way of saying it. This is the junk drawer requirement. <laughs> Everything else goes here. Everything's put here. He must be above reproach. Meaning he must be blameless. Now that doesn't mean that he's perfect. No man is. But rather it means that his observable behavior, what, what, what you see of him from the outside, it is irreproachable. You, you shouldn't be able to charge him with anything. No, his life is free from obvious inconsistencies. He has no glaring faults that can be easily pointed out. And so there is nothing in his character, there's nothing in his behavior, there's nothing in his lifestyle that calls him into question. He is above reproach. Meaning, beloved, that the church doesn't just need elders. The church needs godly elders. His character is what matters. Character in ministry isn't one thing about among many things. It is the thing. Character is everything in church leadership. You know why? Because our ministry and our teaching can be undone by our living. So we look for men of character. He must be above reproach. So what then does this above reproach life look like? Well, look at what follows in these seven remaining categories. Second, his fidelity in marriage. His fidelity or his faithfulness. In marriage. Look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, that's probably not the best translation because literally it reads a one woman man. And the emphasis here is on the word one. It's emphatic. That's why it comes first in, in the sentence. He is a one woman man. Now, what does that mean, a one woman man? Well, here's a couple of things to keep in mind. Number one, here's the first thing I want to say. Just, just a brief comment, but it's no small thing. Where does Paul begin in characterizing a godly elder? He begins with his marriage. 
That is no small thing. It's the first on Paul's list. The priority is his marriage. How many times have you seen a man's ministry fall apart because his marriage falls apart? One commentator writes, marriage is the most probing test of a man's character and beliefs. He's a one-woman man. But also notice, it's very clear from this particular qualification that the office of elder is reserved only for men. He is a one-woman man. Paul is assuming here the elders will be men, which follows from what we saw back in chapter 2 where he forbids women from serving and functioning in the role of an elder. He must be a one-woman man. It's only for men. But next qualification, or this qualification, a one-woman man, the husband of one wife, is perhaps the most controversial on this list. No small amount of ink has been spilled on what this phrase means. What does it mean to be a one-woman man? And there are really four main interpretations. Here they are. Let me give them to you. Number one, Paul means that an elder must be married. He can't be single. However, if, if that were the case, then it must also mean that he must have children, according to verse 4. But I don't think Paul means to say that infertility or that singleness disqualifies one from ministry. Not to mention, it would be dangerous, I think, to interpret this phrase in such a way that it would disqualify Paul and it would disqualify Jesus. If, you're, if your qualifications for an elder disqualify Paul and Jesus, you probably need to revisit your qualifications. Not to mention what Paul says elsewhere, if you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says that singleness can actually enhance your opportunity for ministry. So he isn't requiring marriage for eldership. Second, interpretation. Paul is prohibiting polygamy. He's prohibiting more than one spouse. Well, no duh. I mean, the Bible never is okay with that. However, that really wasn't even an issue in Paul's day. So, it's hard to see why he would draw attention to it here. In fact, look over in chapter 5 for a moment, in verse 9. Paul says something very similar to the widows, only it's the exact opposite. He says, she must, chapter 5, verse 9, this widow, she must be the wife of one husband. So a, a one-man woman, but there would have been no issue in the first century of her having more than one husband. So, again, it doesn't seem he's addressing polygamy. It's, I mean, it's implied. Third, he's prohibiting those who are remarried which would then exclude men who have been divorced or widowed. Which, if he's saying that, it's a very awkward way to say it. The husband of one wife, a one-woman man. So in other words, this view would say that he, he can never be divorced, he can never be remarried. No, he must have one wife his entire life. But I'm, I'm not sure that's necessarily what Paul's saying here. For one reason... These are all present tense verbs and qualifications. It's not looking to his past like he's never been drunk. So I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Now hear me very clearly. Of course, of course, 
Divorce is relevant to a man's fitness for ministry as to whether or not he is above reproach. Yes, the timing, the circumstances, the, the parties. So any divorce must figure into an evaluation of any person in the church. It has to. It must always do so. And whether or not he is fit to serve as an elder. And godly Bible-believing Christians disagree on this issue of divorce and remarriage. And thus, I think each local church has to inevitably reach the conclusion on this matter of what is above reproach. And if you want to, you can go and read our church's statement on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But I'm not so sure Paul's addressing the issue of divorce in this particular passage. So what is he saying then? Most scholars agree, here it is, it is best to see this qualification as emphasizing a man's faithfulness to his wife. In other words, that his sexual ethics are above reproach. He doesn't indulge in sexual temptation. He doesn't indulge in pornography. He's not flirtatious. He doesn't entertain other women. No, he is a man who is fiercely faithful to his wife. That's what it means. He has a high sexual ethic, high sexual integrity. Yes, it rules out polygamy, of course, but it also rules out a whole host of other things. Alexander Strout comments, he says, in other words, the elder must be characterized as a one-woman man who is not flirtatious, he's not promiscuous or involved in a questionable relationship with another woman. Viewed in this way, Paul is not referring exclusively to marital status, of the prospective elder, but to a character trait. The phrase, therefore, implies loyalty and faithfulness. He is fiercely faithful to his wife. He's a one-woman man. So it's fidelity in marriage. Third, third qualification, his self-mastery. His self-mastery. Look at verses 2 and 3. We can take those next three together. Verse 2, he's sober-minded. He's self-controlled. He's respectable. In other words, here's a man who isn't driven by his passions. He isn't driven by his emotions. No, he is, he is steady. He, he has self-mastery. Now, what does that look like? Well, look what it looks like. First, he says he's sober-minded. He's sober-minded. The New American Standard translates it, he's, he's temperate. He's sensible. He's sober. Not, not being a reference here to alcohol, he's going to address that later in verse 3, but means his mental sobriety, his, his spiritual, his behavioral sobriety, meaning he's level-headed. He's clear-minded. He's able to make good and wise decisions. He's sober-minded. Notice he's self-controlled. Don't let it be lost. It's a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, he's a man who isn't controlled by his passions. He isn't controlled by his desires. No, he is, he is disciplined. He doesn't allow his feelings. He doesn't allow his emotions to control him. How can he rule over the church if he can't even rule over himself? So is he in control of his anger? Is he in control of his temper? Is he in control of his lusts and his emotion and his mouth? He must be self-controlled. Third, he must be respectable. 
meaning he's, he's well-mannered. He isn't offensive. His life, his character, they, they evoke the admiration and praise of other people. He's honorable. In fact, it's the same word. Notice back, chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul says, women are to adorn themselves in respectable apparel. In other words, here's a man who earns the respect of others by the way he carries himself, by the way he lives his life. He's respectable. So does he have self-mastery? Because listen to me. Men who are driven by their passions, men who are driven by their emotions are usually the most disruptive people in the church and as an elder they will destroy it. No, he has mastery over himself. Fourth, his hospitality. You've been hearing that word around these parts a lot recently. Hospitality. All Christians are to be hospitable. The Bible's clear. This is a command for all believers. 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to the stranger. So all Christians are to be hospitable. But the elder is to manifest this in his life to a degree that it's noticeable. He's, he's marked by these things. Yes, it's true of all believers, but he's marked by this. Hospitality is one of those things. Now, why is that? Well, because hospitality demonstrates a tangible love for other people. He's got skin in the game. This would have been true in the early church, of course, where we didn't have jury inns and hotels down the street. So the church must have an open door to travelers and to strangers. In fact, that's what the word hospitality means, by the way. It means lover of strangers. So the question is, does this man love strangers? Does he welcome others? Does he welcome church members? Does he welcome strangers into his home, into his, into his life, or is he closed off? Never being with his people. One, one person said one time, does the shepherd smell like the sheep? He's got to be with them. Now, that doesn't mean he has to be an extrovert, but he does have to be hospitable. Because if he isn't, the church won't be either. It's a defining mark of godliness for the elder, for the church. So let me ask you, when people encounter the elders of Second Baptist Church, when they encounter the people of this church, do they find us to be hospitable? Do they find us to be warm, welcoming, open arms? He must be hospitable. In fact, beloved, let me just say this. I believe, there's been a lot of writing on this recently, but I do believe it's true that hospitality is probably one of the great apologetics of our day. In, in other words, especially in a culture that is becoming more and more secular, anti-Christian, less connected to a biblical worldview, where you open your front door and you sit around a meal, and when love is brought to bear, it opens the way for truth. 
And there are so many Christians in our day, at least I think they're Christians, I don't know. There's so many Christians in our day who want to wield the sword of truth, but they're not warm and loving. They have to be hospitable. Fifth, his teaching ability. Look at verse 2. He must be able to teach. The New American Standard says, skillful in teaching. Skillful. I said it last week. This is the This is the one irreducible calling of the elder. This is the one that sets him apart from everybody else. And it's the main way he loves the the church. It's the main way that he cares for the church. He's able to teach. Titus 1.9, he must be able to give instruction and sound doctrine. Remember, that's the nurturing aspect of pastoral ministry. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's the protecting aspect of pastoral ministry. He must be able to teach. So while every other trait on this list is a character trait, this one, able to teach, refers to his gifting. He has to be gifted. He has to be apt. He has to be skilled in teaching. If he can't teach, he shouldn't be an elder. Now let me be clear. That doesn't mean that every elder will be able to teach at the same level of gifting. Or at the level of your favorite podcast preacher. Okay? But what it does mean, I think, is that he can handle the Bible. He can preach a sermon. He can can teach in a Sunday school class. He can counsel in a small group. He can open the Bible. He can explain a passage of Scripture. And he can apply it to God's people. He's able to communicate effectively and teach sound doctrine. And rightly divide the word with courage and clarity and conviction. He's able to teach. John Calvin said it like this. An elder must have wisdom in knowing how to apply God's word to the profit of the people. So it's his teaching ability that sets him apart. Sixth, his drinking habits. Verse 3, he must not be a drunkard. New American Standard, not overindulging in wine which means exactly what it says. He isn't filled with Jack Daniels. He's filled with the Spirit. So not only is he free from drunkenness, he's free from any addiction. So the idea here, though, isn't he's a teetotaler. Verse 8, a deacon must not be addicted to much wine, Paul's going to tell Timothy later to take some wine for his stomach. So I believe it's more a reference to moderation than it is total abstinence, although elders may hold to that conviction, and that's great. But Paul is saying if he's a slave of Christ, he can't be a slave to anything else. His drinking habits. Seventh, his temper and his temperament. His temper and his temperament. Look at verse 3. He's not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Meaning he isn't a bully. He isn't combative. He's not contentious. He isn't a fighter. He isn't quick-tempered. So not only does he refrain from beating up people with his fists, he refrains from beating up people with his words. Verse 3, he's 
gentle, which is a word I think that's important to remember in our world it views gentleness as weakness. One commentator writes, the true strength of a man lies in gentleness. Of course, an elder must be firm when he rebukes sin, when overseers lack the courage to confront the church loses its conviction, but an elder must be gentle. He must live among God's people like a tender shepherd. He must be sympathetic with the weak and compassionate to the wounded. He must be gentle. And look there in verse 3, he must not be quarrelsome. He isn't the kind of guy who's always looking for a fight. He doesn't always have a theological chip on his shoulder. I mean, this guy, listen, he can have every right doctrine, but if he likes fighting more than he likes doing ministry, he isn't a blessing to anybody and he shouldn't be a pastor. No. In fact, I remember a, a friend one time, I thought this was a great analogy, he called this muscle car theology. Right? You know the guy, you pull up next to him, at the stoplight, he's just revving the engine, showing off what he's got. Same way with the pastor, right? Sovereignty of God. Showing it off. No. He can't be the kind of guy who's always trying to provoke people and pick fights. Yes, men can have opinions. Yes, elders will disagree. But one quarrelsome elder will wreck a church. And then finally, his attitude toward money. Look there, verse 3. He's not to be a lover of money. He's to be free from the love of money. Now, I would question the intelligence of anyone who goes into ministry for the money. But apparently, this was an issue in Paul's day. And still today, it is. Look at chapter 6 and verse 5. He says, the false teachers imagined that godliness was a means of gain. And especially, I think it's true for overseers in the church who oversee the church's finances. But the elder Paul says he must be content. He must be content with what he has. He must be content with God's provision in his life. And he must be generous. And isn't this where we have seen also so many fall in ministry? So, beloved, this is what an elder's character must be, these eight characteristics. But then, notice, notice in verses 4 to 7, he gives three testing grounds, three testing grounds for the church to observe in order to prove his fitness for the ministry. Third, I want you to notice the testing ground of the elder, verses 4 to 7. And notice here that Paul gives three specific situations in the life of a man to observe as to whether or not he's fit for eldership. And notice that Paul also gives reasons for why. Why it's important to examine each of these areas of his life. So three testing grounds. Look at them. Testing ground number one. First, notice his home life. His home life, verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Most elders really learn how to be an elder on the job. 
right? I mean, there's just some things you can't learn until you do it, right? But notice here, Paul says his learning actually begins at home. In fact, his preparation as an elder comes as he manages his own household. So as he leads, as he bears authority in his home, as he disciplines, as he teaches, as he disciples, as he instructs, as he models in his home, it actually prepares him for the role of an elder. Now, why is that? Why? Why? Well, look at verse 5. Notice the purpose clause. For, here's why he has to manage his own household well. If someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's a lesser to greater argument. If he can't manage his small family, then how can he manage all of God's family? And the answer is, he can't. Why? Because hear me, it is much more difficult, it is much more complex to manage a church than it is to manage your own home. So verse 4, you must with all dignity keep his children submissive. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me say this. You can, be, you can keep your children submissive without dignity. Shut up! No, he's a controlled man who disciplines his kids with a lot of warmth, a lot of affection, but a lot of firmness. And it means his children respect him because he brings truth and grace and godliness to bear in his home. His children respect him because they know what dad teaches, what dad preaches, what dad says with his mouth, he does in his living. Because they honor him as a man of character. And he gives firm, solid, strong, gentle leadership. He, he is the authority in his home. And then when he becomes an elder, it's really just as though the number of his children now multiplies. His spiritual children, right? <laughs> Some of them are knuckleheads too. Which means, church, that if you see one of my kids doing a tornado through the auditorium in the middle of the service, which is not outside the realm of possibility, or one of them karate chops another kid in the hall, well, he isn't, you know, he isn't fit for ministry. Well, I hope that you will see immediately after that me come and say, okay, my dear, come with me. We need to go have a little talk. It doesn't mean his children are perfect. It means when they're disobedient, they're dealt with just like church members. Now, why so much focus on the family? Well, because, hear me, the home is the hardest place to live the Christian life. Because that is where people encounter the real you. Who you are at home, listen, is who you are. Do you hear me? Who you are at home is who you are. Men, who your children and your wife see you at home as, that's who you are. That's the measure of what you are. 
It's not here. It's there. And so the home is the largest window into the pastor's life. Does he have a good marriage? Does he have a supportive and submissive wife? Does he have well-behaved children? All of that represents a well-managed home. His home life. Second, his spiritual maturity. Look there. Verse 6. That's the idea here behind the timing of his conversion, how long he's been a believer. Look there, verse 6. Testing ground number 2. He must not be a recent convert. In other words, he needs experience. (laughs) Spiritual maturity matters. Spiritual age matters. It doesn't have anything to do with physical age, physical maturity. It has to do with spiritual maturity here. So there's a danger, notice, in moving him into this position too quickly. That's what we saw, remember, chapter 5, verse 22, about being too hasty and laying on of hands. Why? Why? Well, because think about it. New converts can be very idealistic. New converts can be overly zealous. New converts can be dangerous with what they know. Maybe this wasn't when you became a believer, but when you came to an understanding of certain doctrines, you you just really needed to be locked up in a cage for a few years so that you hurt anybody with your quote-unquote knowledge. Yeah. No spiritual maturity there. And there are certain things you need to learn. There's certain things you need to grow in. There's certain things that need to be tested first. That's the idea. Now, why? Well, look at verse 6. Because if he's thrust into that position of leadership too quickly, he can become puffed up with pride. And brothers and sisters, I I think this is one reason why we're seeing many pastors fall in the ministry is because they are thrust into positions of leadership too quickly. Their, their, Their gifting goes ahead of their character and they're thrust into that place way too quickly. And in fact, notice there's a warning here in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, what's the condemnation of the devil? He became proud. Satan became puffed up and he fell. And the same condemnation and judgment can happen to you. Third, his outside reputation. His outside reputation. Testing ground number three, verse seven. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Meaning he, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Outsiders. He, mean, he means unbelievers here. So it isn't just that he has a good reputation and relationships with those inside the church. But he also must have a good reputation and relationships with those outside the church as well. The unbelieving world. Now think about that with me for just a moment. Why is that so important to Paul? Why must a church leader have a good reputation with those outside the church? Well, don't separate this passage from the overall purpose of this letter. In chapter 3, verse 15, Paul's aim is that the church continue to act as a support and a defense of the gospel. The pillar and buttress of the truth. And we saw in chapter 2, in verses 1 to 5, his main concern is the salvation of all people 
That God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, brothers and sisters, the church is on a mission to reach the world. And we have a message of good news for sinners. There's a Savior who's come into the world, who's the only mediator between God and men. We have a message for a lost and dying world. And yet there is also a snare that the devil loves to set. There's a trap that he loves to use. What does he do? Look at verse 7. He sets before the world ungodly church leaders. He sets before the world the fall of men in ministry. He sets before the world the hypocrisy of elders and pastors and people in the church and men who are one thing at church and then they're another thing out in the world. Why? So that what the world sees with their eyes causes them to close their ears to the message. Because it's actually the reputation of the church that can keep them from believing the gospel. And so he says the elder must have exemplary character both inside and outside the church. That'd be true of anybody. But it's especially true of the elder. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is too important. It is too precious. They may be able to criticize his message. They should never be able to criticize his character. Robert Murray McShane, a famous Scottish pastor in the 19th century, he wrote these words to a fellow pastor. He says, It is not great talent that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. That's why it matters. Too, too, too much is at stake here. The gospel is too precious. The church is too important. So that's the testing ground. He must lead like Christ. He must care like Christ. He must preach Christ. And he must model Christ. These are men who so delight in Christ that he shapes their very being. Let me just give a few points of application. We'll be done. Very briefly. Number one, if some of you have this holy, noble desire, I would say to you, this is what you have to be. Your character isn't secondary, brother. It's everything. And church, let me say for the long-term health, the long-term protection of this church for generations to come, we must be raising up godly men like this to shepherd this church. And what we must be looking for are men of character. Not that he has an MDiv. Although that's great. And I paid a lot of money for that. But that he's a man of character. Second, we should pray for such men. This is one of your duties. This is one of my duties. If, if you're not praying for the elders... You are doing damage to your own soul. You should want godly elders watching your soul. For future elders, current elders, are you praying for your elders? Third, finally, if you're a member of this church, and I say this without hesitancy, unashamedly, you are to submit to your leaders. 
You are to obey and honor your leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for the keeping watch over your soul as those who will give an account. Listen, it's easy to submit. It's easy to respect. It's easy to honor when you agree. There's no need for a command when you agree. But the testing really comes when you don't agree. And I'm not talking about doctrinally. I'm just talking about in leading. But that's your charge. And church, I am so thankful that despite what we've been through in recent years, God has held us together. And I attribute that to two things. Here it is. Well, first of all, I attribute it to the grace of God. I attribute that, number one, to a church that does honor its leaders. Thank you. But I also attribute that to faithful elders who genuinely care about this flock. And I can tell you that the elders of this church take this calling very, very seriously because we know that on that day, we will give an account for every single one of you, not generally, specifically, for how we have led you and how we have cared for you and how we have taught you and how we have modeled Christ to you and we will stand on that day before the great shepherd of the sheep. Who's sufficient for that? And the answer is nobody. It is only Christ working in us, strengthening, sustaining. So we look to him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how clear it is. We thank you for the picture here we see of godly leadership in the local church. It is so precious to you, so precious to you that you gave the blood of your own son to purchase her. Jesus, we worship you that you willingly set aside your glory to come and serve your bride, to lay down your life to make her pure and to buy her back. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you've opened our eyes to see this beautiful mystery of Christ's love for the church. Glory be to Christ who is our King, our Savior, our Shepherd, our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.